said that even if no one shows up to church on a Sunday morning, he will still preach. Because when we preach the gospel, we also preach to the powers and principalities in this world. So here goes. God is on the throne. He's in charge. That has not changed. He holds us all in his hands and stands before all times as Alpha and Omega. God is on the throne. Let's say that together. Wherever you are, put aside the awkwardness of talking to your screen and remember that we are declaring something to a much larger audience. Let's say it together again. God is on the throne. Let's pray. God, we do remember that you are on the throne, that you are in charge, that you see all and hear all, and nothing is a surprise to you. And I ask, God, that this morning that you would allow us to hear only the truth that you would have for us. But whatever that truth is, would you help it to sink deep within our hearts and minds and spirits? And would you give us an assurance of your presence with us wherever we are in your peace, we pray. Amen. It's been a week. By about Wednesday or Thursday, I quit saying we are taking this day by day and started realizing this was hour by hour. Plans have fallen through, vacations put aside, groceries bought, and like a stack of dominoes, our cell phones buzzed with cancellation after cancellation after cancellation. This past month at Courtright, we've been working our way through the book of James. And in our final chapter in this series, it was hard to miss the incredibly direct words that James has that are significant for us today. The end of James 4 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wishes, we will live and do this and that. Haven't we lived this this week? All the plans and ideas we had about what even ordinary things in our day would look like have changed drastically and very quickly. But there are actually gifts that a crazy season like this affords. And I want to suggest this morning that God is offering us the same gift in the midst of this virus chaos as he is in James's letter. And I think that gift can be summed up in one word, perspective. Times like the ones we are in offer perspective. Not only a new way of looking at something, but a right ordering and corrected view. Here are a few definitions of perspective, and you can see if any of these feel familiar from the last week. A particular attitude toward or way of regarding something, a point of view. True understanding of the relative importance of things. Showing the right relationship between things. Friends, we are being given the gift of perspective, a new attitude or way of regarding something, a true understanding of the relative importance of things, seeing things in right relationship with one another. And all this perspective serves a greater purpose, one that God is always at work accomplishing, and that is drawing us closer to himself. God is on the throne And he is offering us new perspective, a different way of looking at things, and this is serving to draw all people to himself. 
We're going to look at the perspective that God is offering us in two passages from James and then turn to a third to ask, with all that in mind, what are we to do? So I do invite you to actually have your Bible with you this morning. We're going old school, but if you've got it on a phone, that's okay too, so that you can follow along and see these words in James and then maybe go back later to see them again. James is towards the end of your Bible, if that helps. Um, In the passage I read moments ago, and I encourage you to follow along, James chapter 4, verse 13 to 16, that's what we just read, is reminding us that we are not in control. You think you will go to this town or that and conduct your business? You think you will go to Florida on March break? You think you'll be commuting into work as usual? You imagine a quick run into the grocery store for a couple items. All this reminds us that we live with an illusion of control. We are being reminded that we are not in control. And though that may feel terrifying, it's actually great news. Because God is in control and is much better at it than we are. None of this is a surprise to God. And we are being led to our rightful place of knowing our need for him. We have an opportunity right now to remember our dependence on him for the big and small things of life. He's also reminding us to see our life rightly. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This statement is way more about the vastness of God than about the significance of our lives. It is way more about perspective, giving us a right view of who God is and therefore who we are in relation to God. We need to remember the vastness of God, his might, his everlastingness, his omnipotence. And when our eyes are fixed on him, in light of all this, our lives are amissed. God is on the throne. James has more for us. We've called this sermon series, Walk This Way. But an alternative title that I preferred was A Giant Kick in the Butt. But the graphics for that were a little less appealing. James has one more kick in the butt for us in the beginning of chapter 5, and it's quite a punt. Would you follow along with me from the beginning of chapter 5? Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter." This, too, is the word of the Lord, and this, too, has something for us here today. That first line, come now, you rich people, that's us. I know we all come from various socioeconomic backgrounds, but the rich is us. And James is saying, you rich people are weeping for the misery that is coming upon you now when you have overlooked years of oppression on those who have less. In 2020 terms, you are now stockpiling toilet paper out of fear, while people around the world and in our own country have never had clean drinking water, while the people who make the things we buy are not paid enough, and while wars are fought for the commodities we use. Now, I want to be crystal clear. This is not 
to minimize the seriousness of the situation we currently find ourselves in. It is incredibly serious, and significant measures are absolutely in order. But James is reminding us that people have been oppressed and in danger by many things for a long time, and we have actually been part of these systems that keep them in poverty and in danger. James is doing here what he has been doing throughout the whole book, and that is calling us to live consistent lives of integrity, meaning that all of our words, all of our actions, all of our beliefs are in sync, in alignment, that we are consistent in how we live and work, what choices we make, how we spend our money, what we buy, that we are consistent living as people of God all the time in our thoughts and actions, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have been reminded this week that the virus does not particularly care if you are a Hollywood movie star or the wife of a prime minister or have 18 bottles of Purell stocked at home. We are all humans created in the image of God who are in need of God's care. And as we see the limits of our wealth to stop this virus, This offers us a new perspective on our wealth and the things we hold dear. We can't take them with us, and they are futile in saving us. Recently, I received a few items of clothing that had belonged to my grandmother who passed away at Christmas. It was so strange to receive these things that so personally belonged to her. It felt almost wrong, like, no, these are hers, or she should have them. But it was such a striking reminder that these have no value to her. She can't take them with her, and they won't do anything for her anymore. Just because James says our things will eventually get eaten by moths and disintegrate into rest does not mean there is a problem with our possessions themselves. The problem comes with our view of them and how we hang on to and cling to them. We put our trust in them, whether it's putting our trust in our bank balance or a bottle of hand sanitizer. These words in James and a crisis like this offer us a new perspective on our wealth. Ultimately, we are people in need of a savior, and the only one that truly saves is Jesus. And we have the opportunity right now for how we view and hold our wealth and our possessions to be recalibrated. Part of having a right view of our wealth and its futility to save us in the end also requires us to hold a right view of the privilege that our wealth does provide. We are so privileged, even in the midst of this virus. Most of us have many have homes to go to and money to buy and order food with, and many of us have people to be around us, even in social distancing. But there are many who don't have these things. We are equal in our humanity, but we are not equal in our vulnerability to weather this storm or the potential economic outfall. This will absolutely affect those most vulnerable in our communities and around the world in the hardest ways. Whether it's small local businesses, single moms trying to work with kids now at home, new immigrants without networks of support, people with complex health needs, friends who struggle with anxiety, people with precarious employment, and around the world at the ends of our supply chains and in countries without the medical systems in place to care well for their people. We live regularly as part of systems in which some are advantaged and some are oppressed. 
And this situation reminds us of how connected we all truly are to one another. In the coming days and weeks, as supply chains are disrupted and news comes in from overseas, we will be reminded that as a global family, truly what happens to one has an impact on us all. But the impact will be experienced most strongly for the most vulnerable. The super strong language that James uses in these verses, that language is there for a reason. Not for us to minimize and say, well, our flesh won't really be eaten by fire. It's a metaphor. When we dismiss something as figurative language, we miss the intent behind the words. The language is so strong because we are meant to take this seriously. The opportunity in this time is to gain a right view to be recalibrated, to see God rightly for who he is, see ourselves rightly in light of who God is, and see our relationships with one another and the impact we have on one another locally and globally. A friend of mine, who is one of the most incredible people I know, works at a community in the Parkdale neighborhood in Toronto. They call their community The Dale and are a community composed of marginalized members of their neighborhood. My friend Erin wrote this past week about her and a fellow staff member, Joanna, as they are figuring out what it means to care for people in poverty amidst a pandemic. Erin writes this. Joanna and I went to visit a friend today who is generally housebound and certainly well acquainted with poverty. His word to us, people should really learn how to take care of each other and share. He went on to say a number of things, including how aware he is that if he buys three rolls of toilet paper, it means two other people don't have any. In the coming weeks, let us make ourselves aware of the ramifications for the most vulnerable near us and around the world, and let us truly love our neighbors as ourselves. This has been a challenging teaching, and we are not meant to despair. God and the author James are not content to leave us in this place. Perspective can be difficult. It's hard to adjust to a new way of seeing, and a new perspective can feel disorienting. But thankfully, James does not end there. God doesn't leave us there either. Paul in Romans says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And once again, that's because this repentance, this new perspective, this gift of seeing what really matters, all serves the greater purpose of drawing us to God, of looking to him for our salvation, of fixing our eyes on our creator, healer, sustainer, and loving parent, and finding our refuge and our security in his embrace. This all leads us to the final passage in James's letter. Let's hear and receive these words together. James 5, starting at verse 13. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. After giving us this big kick in the butt, James then tells us how to respond. And it's quite simple. Are you suffering? Pray. Cheerful? Sing songs of praise. Sick? Call the elders to pray for you in the name of the Lord. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We have to sit with the hard teaching because good news is not good news without bad news. We had to remember where we have come from to receive the gift of perspective that this rebuke offers to enter into what God has in store for us. All of these are about us being restored to how we are meant to live, whole, healed, forgiven. It's how we go from the unintegrated life, the inconsistent life that James has been warning us against, telling us to have self-control over our tongue, act and live in a way that is the outworking of our faith, the overflow of what we believe, living in a way that is not about the oppression of others, particularly the most vulnerable, to look after the widows and orphans and be about their flourishing, to love our neighbors. All of these instructions in James so that we can live fully as the children of God we are, as ones who are being saved and redeemed, in whom all things are being made right, some in this life and some in the age to come. There's a simplicity to these tasks that we tend to complicate. And as I look at this list, suffering, pray. Cheerful, sing song. Sick, ask people to pray for you. Confess your sins. As I consider these things, I actually think of a child and the simplicity of their faith. They don't get caught up in all of the things that hang us up. They just do. When Zoe was about three years old, she asked me where God lived. And I said, well, God lives in heaven, but he also lives in the hearts of people who love him. And she said, well, does he live in my heart? And I said, well, you could ask him to. And before I knew what was happening, she said, dear God, please live in my heart. Okay, thanks. End of story. Just like that. Jesus implores us to have faith like a child. To ask in faith. And James tells us the prayers of righteous people, that is people living in right relationship with God, themselves, and others, are powerful and effective. James reminds his listeners of this incredible story about one of the prophets in the Old Testament named Elijah. At that time, the people of Israel were worshipping other gods, and the king was even putting to death the prophets of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. So Elijah sent word to the king that there would be no rain for a few years, and a terrible famine overtook the land. After years of drought, Elijah showed the futility of the false gods and the incredible strength and power of Yahweh in one of the most dramatic stories in the Bible. And you can read it in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And after that, God sent rain to the parched land. Do you see here that in this story, God was drawing people to himself? The people had turned away from the Lord God, and the place the Lord should have had in their hearts was taken by something that could do nothing for them, had no life to it. And in this, God reminded the people of who he truly was as he drew them back to himself. James says Elijah was just a human, no different from us, but he was able to live out this incredible faith in prayer, and God answered. So once again... 
Are you suffering? Pray. Cheerful? Sing songs of praise. Sick? Call the elders to pray for you in the name of the Lord. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. A word on asking for healing. What comes to mind quickly, for me at least, when we think of asking for healing, is the times where we feel that God has not answered this prayer. And I'm sure we can all think of those. I myself have been healed physically of something I never expected, and then have prayed and been prayed for for years and years for other healing, and it has not been realized. I don't know why. I really appreciate what the Alpha Course teaches on healing. And Nikki Gumbel says this, Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is God's sphere of influence. And one day, God's sphere of influence will be complete when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, everyone's going to be healed. There will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more pain. God's kingdom will be complete. But right now, that's not the case. We live in between the times where we are awaiting God's return, and right now, not everybody is healed. There is a future kingdom, but there is a present aspect to it right now, and you can experience a foretaste of what will come in the future. John Wimber used to say, when we prayed for no one, no one was healed. Now we pray for lots of people, and some are healed. All of what we have talked about today offers us right perspective, knowing our need for God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he is saying there is that you are right on, right where you are meant to be, in sync, when you are in a place of knowing your need for God. That's right where I want you, he says. So there are four invitations for us today, straight from the end of James's letter. We've said them already. Would you consider which one of these resonates the most for you today? The first invitation. Is there something in your life that you have seen as an inconsistency? It doesn't line up. Your faith doesn't match your action. James invites us or implores us, confess your sins to one another. Would you find someone you can share with and pray together, asking for forgiveness? And God delights in answering that prayer. The second invitation. Are you sick or suffering? Ask for prayer. We don't know what will happen or how God will choose to meet you, but praying from this place reminds us of our need for God. Third invitation. Are you cheerful? Maybe you have something to celebrate. Wonderful. Do it. Give praise to God. Remember your dependence and need for him by giving thanks to God. It's good and right to celebrate with one another. Fourth invitation. So two of those other invitations involved having someone to pray with. Maybe the invitation for you today is to be that person to pray for another. If you feel a prompting or nudge or fluttering about that, it's likely the Holy Spirit inviting you to pray with someone. Go for it. We will let James have the last word. So just after giving that giant rebuke in chapter 5, James says this, Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. In all this, We remember that God is on the throne and that he is the one to make all things right. 
When we speak of God's kingdom, we talk about his sphere of influence. And one day his sphere of influence will be complete and over everything and all will be made well. And that is where our hope lives. In Jesus, our Savior, who is making us and the world right again. Let's pray. God, we are humbled and grateful when we fix our eyes on you, knowing that you are doing this incredible work of redeeming all things, of drawing all things to yourself. God, we pause and remember and thank you and praise you. Would you help us to move in the ways that we need to, to be more aligned with that work that you are doing? whether it's uh, confessing something or asking for forgiveness, uh, praying for one another, whatever it is, Lord, would you move us to be more in line with the wholeness, the peace, the shalom that you offer. And we thank you that it is in your son's name, Jesus, that we can pray and have this hope. Amen. Thank you, Allison.